Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take equine research and try and make it accessible to horse owners and enthusiasts alike. Remember that with each topic we discuss, it's important to get professional advice before implementing any of the strategies. This week, Kate and I are continuing our part two on equine nutrition, and we are actually on the small intestine and um, beginning with the small intestine, which is 70 feet long or 21 meters, uh, it contains three parts. We've got the duodenum, we've got the jejunum, and then we've got the ileum. And usually that part of the intestine does process the feed relatively fast. So um, the interesting thing I took away from this is that horses don't have a gallbladder. Did you know that, Kate? It always slips my mind. And I think like that's one thing I do love to point out about when you do something like vet medicine, um, every species is different. Every species has, you know, like different quirks to the anatomy. I feel like we need to definitely tip our hats to vets out there and vet nurses when you have to go through all the different anatomy for every species. And remember, like, for instance, with horses, they don't have a gallbladder. But anyway, yeah. I want to investigate then how can we advocate high fat diets for horses when they don't have a gallbladder? Because I realized the bile that a gallbladder produces is to metabolize fats. While horses normally are, have very low fat diets, but then we come along and, and we say, well, instead of feeding starch, and sugar diets, we can supplement them with fat. But then in doing so, if they don't have a gallbladder, how can we do that? And so I, I asked the nutritionist about that. And he said, that's why it's so important. If you're going to switch your horse to some kind of an oil, um, you know, add an oil into their feed, you have got to do that over the course of a two to three week period so their liver and their pancreas can adapt to um, those bile salt excretions that are so important for fat digestion. So that's one of the reasons um, that sometimes if all of a sudden you, you get a whim to feed a cup of oil, that's go going to impact their liver producing the bile. And then that blood returning to the liver minus those bile salts. So I think that, you know, that was my main question is, oh my God, well, how can we feed high fat diets? And you can, but you just have to make sure that change is very gradual. And I think as a domestic species, um, horses still re retain so much of their ancestors' um, 
I suppose like anatomy, structure and instincts even. And we know that from how they behave. But, you know, we can adapt some domestic species a lot more diets. And we know from looking at diets of horses, they predominantly still need that high fiber, high forage diet. That's not, they wouldn't encounter fats, you know, out roaming the plains in the wild. So it is something that has to be done very carefully. And I think we're moving towards understanding a bit better the importance of bringing in a nutritionist to help us because even human nutrition can be very complex and it can be something that's very difficult and overwhelming to try and work out for yourself. So if you are at all concerned with the rations you're feeding, definitely reach out to a nutritionist and get some advice because it will be well worth it. Yeah, I was fortunate. My supervisor um, for the Edinburgh uh, program is an equine nutritionist and physiologist. So I'm lucky I can reach out to him whenever I have questions. But one thing that he also pointed out is that horses don't need a gallbladder because they're trickle feeders. They're constantly eating, whereas humans, we need gallbladders because we'll eat these large meals and we'll need help in breaking those meals down. So I think it's phenomenal how each um, species adapts to its behavior and and eating patterns and all that. But um, anyway, um, have a Google of the equine gallbladder and read all about why they don't need one and how important it is that because they don't have one, we have to make those dietary changes uh, very slowly. Sometimes people will mix that up because we call it the small intestine and the large intestine, whereas the large intestine or the hindgut is just very wide in diameter in comparison. Did you say 75? Nancy, um, for that small intestine length? Um, 70 feet and then t- which I it's about 21.3 meters in length although it is a smaller diameter which is where the name came from because that kind of messed me up in class with the small being the longest and the large intestine being somewhat short yeah <laughs> I think that's if you're not picturing it in your head I know. So, but anyway, um, I think, you know, I think you're so correct with that long stem forage because in that small intestines, the pH is still pretty neutral. It's an eight. So um, it's more alkaline because of the high bicarbonate content from that saliva is still working, even though It's gone through the acid of the stomach. Now it's on into the small intestine. We have the um, food stuff move from the small intestine into the large intestine. Also referred to in horses as the hind gut. And here it undergoes fermentation. So this is quite an important process specifically in horses. And the digestion and absorption of any kind of residual carbohydrate relies on um, microbial fermentation. So having a complex microbiome um, colony in the gut. 
I think one of the other things that I picked out of this paper is that most macro minerals and trace elements given to horses are absorbed in the small intestine as are most of our dietary vitamins we give our, our horses. However, phosphorus is absorbed mainly in the hind gut and high phosphorus intake, um, especially from plants, may interfere with calcium absorption in the small intestine. So that's kind of like, um, that can be so confusing to people. Like when you're giving um, microbial supplement or a vitamin sup supplement, how do you know it's going through to the right place? And the answer of that, you know, it could be your microbials that you're growing in your horse's gut. So that's why I agree totally with what Kate said that the, you know, just buying a microbial supplement might not be the answer um, because as we saw in that one paper we've reviewed, their microbial populations are constantly changing. We do know though that healthy microbes for that particular individual horse, they grow well with plenty of forage and good forage, long-stemmed forage. So I think your best bet is feed your horses adequate forage. Um, so horses should have access to clean drinking water at all times. Again, on the climate, you're going to have to check that, but you should check it at least twice a day. If you're in a colder climate where it's prone to freezing, then you're going to have more often. But the water intake and requirements are influenced by the total dry matter they consume. So that's the content of the dry matter content of the feed. And this is going to be higher if they're eating hay compared to eating it out at pasture because we know fresh grass is going to have a higher water content. So they were saying, for example, a 500 kilo at an ambient temperature of 20 degrees is going to need about 25 to 45 liters of water in a day. Yeah, and you know, it's been 100 degrees in my part of the world, um, Fahrenheit, that is, and that's 38 degrees centigrade, or Celsius, yeah. at, sorry, Celsius, and I mean, that need of 25 to 45 liters increases 15% to 30% at those higher levels. And I can tell my horses are constantly coming up to the water trough when it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And I'm even hosing them off to, you know, cool them and yeah. all that. It, it's just the fact that the more, the hotter it is, the more water they drink. Now that's why winter you have impaction colics because they're on a hay diet and you're, they're not drinking enough water because it's cold out. So uh, some people believe in giving warm tepid water to induce a horse to drink a little more. And uh, so whatever works, you've got to get water into your horses. You always say, Nancy, don't you, that you give your pony a, a nice little cuppa. 
she waits for her cuppa every winter morning, but you know, she gets browsy hay because she doesn't need the calories. And so I got to make sure she gets plenty of fluid. And that's one way I can get that, that pony to drink. So whatever it takes, I'll do it. Do you just, how do you warm up the water for her? I have hot water in my wash rack. So I just make sure that it's not too hot, but that it's, um, you know, when I touch it, it feels warm and she'll drink, uh, you know, she'll drink as much as I will bring to her. But normally I just bring about a five gallon bucket of hot water before turnout. Oh, it's and- really important to, to <laughs> utilize what you can to try and increase the water consumption because even short periods of turnout where there's no access to water you know we've got that increase of colon uh, colon impaction which Nancy's mentioned but we also have an increase of gastric ulceration too so water is an important component to bear in mind when we're looking at overall gut health yeah, and I do find that, um, you know, I have a couple horses want nothing to do with the tepid water. Um, all my mares, they will drink a warm water. And so I'll, I, it takes a little extra time, but I'll do it just to make sure they're getting enough. And, and you know, so far so good in that department. Then moving on to forage. So we wanted to touch a little on forage today and we have done other episodes on forage. So if you have a look back through the um, series or have a look on Instagram or Facebook through the episodes, one in particular is Friends Forage and Freedom, which has some great information in it. But we wanted to just kind of briefly go over the different types of forage and give you a little bit of background on that. So I'll let Nancy do that. And then I just had a little bit short mention on straw to <laughs> round things up for today. Okay, sure. Yeah, um, we're hay farmers. So we typically get about four to five cuttings of hay in a summer season. We're in the Midwest part of the um, United States. So we get our cool season grasses, which is your orchard, your Timothy, Um, You've got warm season grasses, which can be your Bermuda type grasses. And then our cool season legumes are alfalfa and clover. And then uh, we do not have a warm season legume on our farm, but um, we tend to get alfalfa all throughout every cutting. Our alfalfa fields seem to bloom. the first cutting may be a little browsy, which is great for the horses that you're looking uh, to kind of have a low calorie filler. And then um, I'll also add that if you have a hay farmer that will cut hay in the morning, that gives it a little lower sugar content because the sun hasn't pulled the sugar out up the blades of the legumes or the grasses. Brilliant. Um, So we had a question from a listener on Instagram in regards to using straw in the diet kind of as a partial forage um, replacement, partial hay replacement. So they've asked if we would consider looking at the research on feeding straw as part of a hay replacer for good doers in general and those prone to ulcers. 
they've been told by their feed company that they don't recommend feeding any straw to horses who have ulcer issues. Um, as they say, studies have said it's not a good idea, but this listener has looked into it and said, I think those studies were on feeding 100% straw. I just want to add a small amount of straw to my good doer who has had ulcers to try and lower that calorie content of her forage, but keep forage in front of her all the time. What does straw do that it would be worse for a horse with ulcers? Many thanks. Love the podcast. So thank you very much, Paula, for writing in. I did have a bit of a look because in that episode we did on Friends, Forage and Freedom, is it Ruth Morgan, Nancy, is that her name? Yes, she's a um, Dr. Ruth Morgan from the um, Dick Vet um, School at Edinburgh. And she's done research into this and recommended um, including straw in the roughage in your hay and making it kind of browsier. And we've used that word since then because it's slow and it reduces the kinds of calorie intake they're getting from hay and stretches out how long they're having to do it because it's a little bit harder to break down. So I looked up two different papers. Firstly, I looked up the paper mentioned about the um, increase in gastric ulceration. And they were correct that that occurs in horses that were fed 100% um, straw. So straw was the only roughage that those horses were um, exposed to. And not all horses had the increased gastric ulcers from that, but they saw in scenarios where they are fed 100% straw, gastric ulcers increase. Now, they suggest what causes that is mechanical damage, so damage from the straw scraping at the lining, changes in the gastric content, so you can potentially see a reduction in the buffering capacity due to low calcium and low protein content in straw. But also they mentioned that hygienic quality could also play a role. So straw is known to be at risk of low hygienic quality. It is more likely to contain fungi and mesophilic bacteria and other bacteria that are associated with health problems. So from that point of view, it is not as gut friendly as hay is. So straw batches they found collected from horse stables may contain significant amount of microbes and mycotoxins. And these all contribute to horses having of gut ulcerate. However, there is a paper that was published in 2021, I believe. I'll make sure I pull up the right paper now. Let's see. Um 2021 paper and this is by Janssen et al and it's titled straw as an alternative to grass forage in horses effects on postprandial metabolic profile energy intake behavior and gastric ulceration and basically in a nutshell this paper found that in a group of ponies, they were able to feed up to 50% straw, 50% hay, and they saw no difference, no increased risk of gastric ulceration. 
but they do note it was a small group that they did this study on. So further studies do need to be carried out. Um, but in the case of the question from this listener, it does look like you can include straw safely within that diet. I do think it's worth checking with the nutritionist for your specific horse. So the updated paper from 2021 says that so far it seems fairly safe to feed 50-50 and it is what other in the field are currently recommending. Uh, but again, with a nutritionist or with your vet in this specific case, just to be sure that it's safe for your pony or horse. Yeah, that's a good point. And yeah, thoroughbreds do have high starch, normally high carb diets because they expend so much energy on the track. However, that uh, what I did not say in, about the hind gut is that's where the butyrate and all the uh, fermentation supplies the energy that drives a horse. So it's kind of like the rear engine of the horse uh, for its um, synthesis of energy and forage fuels that fire. And also in the winter, that's what uh, fuels their heat generations. So um, thoroughbreds are um, highly um, The other thing I wanted to say is to make sure if, if your horse is on an all forage diet to realize most of the time forage does not provide all the adequate essential vitamins and minerals, even for a pasture ornament. So um, an appropriate balancer is uh, a lot of the times needed and that just helps you make sure they're getting everything they need nutrient wise. So that's everything that we have for part two. We have decided to extend this into part three because there is a little bit left in this paper that we really think is useful to horse owners. So next week, what we're going to look at is how much your horse can eat. So explaining what percentage you should be feeding of um, concentrate and of forage. And then we're also going to talk through making up a ration for a horse as well, because there was a lot of useful information on how to actually balance those rations, like Nancy just mentioned. Even if your horse is only out to pasture, we need to be balancing those vitamins and minerals. Yep. And um, I even was amazed. I think you said it, Kate, how ponies eat so much more than a horse at a much quicker yeah. rate and they bring that up. We'll talk about that next week because I do think I'm guilty at times of overfeeding my pony because I do keep her in good work, but um, they're so good at um, saving that metabolism and, you know, being easy keepers and all that, that a lot of times they don't need everything that the commercial diets give them. They are definitely the Labradors of the horse world. They are yeah. forever hungry. <laughs> I've always been a thoroughbred person, but this pony has, you know, you got to love them. 
they they are so smart and so ingenious in what they try to pull off. So anyway, I'm looking forward to next week, Kate. Um, I I know we've gone three episodes. It'll be on this, but this article or this journal has so much to say. And um, I, I think you'll find it interesting next week as well. And just to note, this journal actually isn't open access, but if you do get into and let you know some different ways to try access to the journal. Uh, but presently, pay for it or you need to have some kind of institution access to get to it. But if you are interested in reading it, then just drop a message on one of our social medias and Nancy and I will get back to you on how to get into it. Otherwise, next week we will talk about rations. Okay, thanks, Kate, for joining in. Bye, everyone. Take care.